Welcome to another episode of the Not There Podcast. It is so great to be with you. I am your host, Joe Chura. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into workplace happiness and culture with my guest and fellow Tahoe lover, Jen Lim. Jen has had an incredible career working with Tony Shea at Zappos. Then together, they took what they learned from that experience and wrote a book you may have heard of called Delivering Happiness. That book was a huge hit and was on the New York Times bestseller list for over 20 weeks, which is remarkable. I am so honored to have had this opportunity to sit down with Jen because as I let her know, Delivering Happiness was a playbook I used when growing my startup companies. We were exploding in growth. I was hiring more and more, but I knew I needed mentorship and guidance. I can point to this book as a game changer for me and among one of the things I cherished most during those early years. Today, Jen and I talk about her new book, and writing that while going through the massive loss Jen experienced with the passing of Tony Shea in November of 2020. Jen remained steadfast and completed her new book, Beyond Happiness, on her own. And even though this isn't part two to delivering happiness, this is equally as important for the business owner, people leaders, and yourself. Many of the concepts presented in this book are applicable to everyday life. Jen shares a few great exercises you can do today, which I will link in my show notes, as well as a link to her book, which is out this week, October 12th to be exact. So let's get to it. Go get the book right after you listen to this. But for now, get up, throw on your shoes, get outside and listen to Jen Lim and I talk about Beyond Happiness. All right, today in the Anonymous There podcast, I have Jen Lim, who is the author of Beyond Happiness, a new book that is coming out in the next month or so. Congrats on the book, and thank you for being here, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's an honor. So I I have to just give you kind of a background origin story. I created a digital marketing agency in 2011 that started with zero employees as many companies do and it, it had grown and a software company was born out of it. Today we have 800 employees and in 2011 I read the book Beyond, uh, Delivering Happiness mm. and it sincerely changed how I looked about or how I looked at growing the company that I founded from the way I hired people to making culture not a second or third thing, but a, but number one, and I know um, beyond ha- beyond happiness isn't let's not call it a sequel, but it's a follow up to delivering happiness. And you wrote that book with Tony Shea in Lake Tahoe, which you and I talked about off air is where I am today. That's serendipitous in itself. Yeah. And I just wanted to, before we dive in, first, just mad respect to Tony and everything that he's done in your in his life and what you've done and how you brought culture front and center to the world. It's truly amazing. I have to know, though, how was it, what was the feeling like and how was it writing that book hmm. in a cabin in Lake Tahoe, drinking uh, <laughs> vodka and coffee beans, which I don't even know what that would taste like. So if you can explain all of that stuff, we have to start there. Okay. <laughs> uh, actually, I love that. That's your first question. <laughs> it's bringing me back quite a bit. And the fact that you're there, it's uh, it's a near and dear place to me. And and yes, it wasn't just all vodka and, and coffee beans, even though it got to there eventually because we started with just a lot of caffeine, 
um, Tony was just taking Excedrin because we were basically pulling all-nighters uh, for that whole week because we had five weeks left um, to p- submit the book and we hadn't started re- writing it yet. All we had was an outline. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, just bringing me back to that moment, I would have to say that it was, if you're uh, familiar with the, the concept of flow, uh, Mick Highchick set me high as a psychologist and positive psychology and, and all that. I didn't know it at the time. Uh, I don't think we, both of us knew it, but we were in a flow. And that's just where time didn't really matter. It's just when you're producing, you're, you're creating, and it just happened to have a beautiful backdrop of Tahoe. Uh, but uh, those... Like that, those days, that week, somehow created like 80% of the book. And I would say that it was probably one of the most magical times I've had in working on a project, um, knowing that most, you know, Tony's a special being. And he, being able to write 80% of the book and in that short amount of time, um, it's it's hard to say that I would ever experience that again, being part of that collaboration and being part of that energy and being part of that. We got to get this done. But at the same time, like just being present um, in, in making that work and making that happen. So it's, uh, you know, the more I, I think I, I reminisce about it, the more I know that was one of the most irreplaceable uh, weeks of my life. That's amazing, Jen. So how did, just digging in there for a second, how did that process work? Was he was he writing and you were scribing or was he thinking out loud and you were scribing or like vice versa and you guys were sharing notes and then how did, how do you actually write the book together? Hmm. Yeah, so that, uh, so basically we had our own very specific roles because everything, Tony, he really wanted to be authentic to everything. If it was a first-person narrative, if he said I in it, that was him. Everything else, like supporting stories, I was just trying to package everything together in a way that is just, you know, his voice was his and what I believed to be right in terms of supporting it of employees or customers or, you know, partners and vendors, the things that we all believed in that what made Zappos a magical place um, and eventually lead to its the success that it had. So that's why I think that it was so it was part of that flow state because he was just doing his thing. I was just doing my thing. We yes, we did have vodka, we did have coffee, but we also had this soup that he made at the very beginning of of the uh of the of the whole trip. And the soup we just kept on drinking, you know, like over time and it kept for some reason, it didn't go down. Like, for some reason, it kept on growing. I don't know why. I think, like, vegetables probably <laughs> got absorbed some water and it just, like, yeah. got bigger and bigger. Uh, so what was really cool about that is, like, we had the right team. And uh, as specifically, we worked with um, Agent uh, Lisa Queen and Will Schwabe. I call him the book whisperer. Uh, he was our editor for the book. And we would just, cur- like, put, like, basically churn out pages send it to them immediately. And they're in New York and they would read and then we would just continue working on our pieces and then they would provide feedback. And it just was that constant turn of 
hey, we should do this differently, or this is spot on. And you just don't really get that level of like alignment, you know? Like it felt just like we didn't even practice the machine, but it was already well oiled. So I think that's why it was, it went so quickly, <laughs> amazingly, because we had a deadline, but um, we had the right people in the room, so to speak. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and did you know that that book was going to be, or was there a moment where you knew how special the book was going to be and it would turn into a playbook for organizations or startups like mine to use mm. and rely on to make their companies successful? I think the turning point happened after definitely the, the book launched. Uh, I think you know, there, there were the original reasons why the book was even happening in the first place, which was, you know, like Zappos was not an overnight success. Uh, its acquisition by Amazon was, you know, it made headlines and people were like, oh, oh amazing, unicorn, whatever. But the reality is like every company that goes through these things has their highs and lows, ups and downs of what a company and leaders and people and employees have to go through to get there. So I think that was one of the main focuses of why the book was written. And Tony also didn't want to retell the story over and over again. So for him, it was just right. like, read the book. Um, but I think the turning point uh, or the tipping point was when like we, we put it all into the book launch. We did this crazy bus tour where instead of just doing bookstore, bookstore, bookstore reading, we decided to buy a bus. It happened to be from... The bass Dave player. Matthews, yeah, you know, yeah. you know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it just all kind of unfolded in a way like we want to do something different. We've never you know, traveled cross country on a bus. And uh, we had a lot of hopes to share the message, uh, not just for businesses, um, but also like we went to hospitals and children's hospitals and, and universities and schools. You know, it was just a way to say this is something that we really feel strongly about. And it wasn't about selling the book. It was more about the message. And that's where I think at a certain point in time, like being on the New York Times bestseller list for like 20-something-odd weeks was pretty surreal. And then having the book being translated in over 20, I would say, five languages now, also surreal. And then knowing that that kind of gave the baton to Delivering Happiness and co-founding that company with him. In fact, the fact that we have, like most of our clients are international, like a good 50-50 healthy balance of uh, organizations, regardless of culture, um, geography, size, or industry, there was something more to it. And that's what I think that um, that tipping point happened. It's like, we got to do something more from, from this book. And then how did that book or that experience shape your writing for beyond happiness. Mm -hmm. And, and I guess before we go there, maybe explain the, the differences between the two, the two books. Mm, yeah. So the, I guess one of the more obvious differences is that Tony was the author of delivering happiness and I'm the author of beyond happiness. So I, I definitely want to be clear that it's not like, you know, a part de, you know, it's not the part two uh, yeah. of the whole saga. It's more of um, 11 years has passed since 2010 of that whole launch. And the time and our world has changed. 
And so the biggest difference for me, I mean, I, I signed this book contract in February of 2020 before everything happened, you know, before COVID, wow. before the recession, yeah. before social unrest, before Tony passed uh, in November. So every time something big happened, I was like, oh man, I got to write this book again. Like I have to restart. It wasn't big enough yeah. for me. It wasn't enough to just share the stories of like, this is what happened with Delivering Happiness. And this is how we impacted, you know, hospitals, organizations, governments around the world. There's something more. So we actually didn't land or, you know, my team now that uh, didn't land on that title until, I mean, Tony passed five weeks before the book was due. And I was just doing my best to just get a book out there in terms of like, what's the story I want to share? And, and really it's about the stories of all these incredible companies and organizations that actually use these principles of scientific happiness and positive psychology towards productivity, profitability, and you know, all the things that companies were looking for. But then the world kind of, you know, did its thing and reset. And I, I call it in the book, Reset on Humanity. And um, it really shoved new questions in our face. And I talk about it in a way, it's called the adaptive age because either you adapt or you don't survive. Um, in, and it, it wasn't, you know, I, I meant it from a company perspective and success, but also a lot of people were past or dying and literally dying. So for me, my biggest difference with Beyond Happiness was just to take it from what we normally think of what happiness is. And, you know, I know you've read the book and, and even today when I talk about happiness, there are certain connotations of what people think in their head of like subjectively, like some think it's rainbows and unicorns. Some think it's like spending time with family. Some think it's like having a higher purpose, which is a big part of what we believe in in scientific happiness. So I really wanted to round that up in a way to say it's not all about the highs in life or our companies. It's also understanding our lows. So I really wanted to represent what beyond happiness means so that everyone can get a more level set as to what's been learned you know, in the last 11 years that by being authentic as leaders you know, to our highs and lows, that makes us not just better leaders and, and in impactful in what we do, it makes us better humans and people of how we lead teams or companies or like how we want to basically make a social and planetary, you know, impact the world in a bigger way. So I brought that up in a way that shows that, hey, there's a lot of people that are still going through rough times. And now that, uh, you know, the, the topic of mental health is a bigger conversation like it's amazing to see that all these previous walls have been just flattened almost immediately you know from Simone Biles at the Olympics just saying you know what I'm not going to do it and people were like some people were like hell yeah nice job other people were pissed as hell like who are you like to say that mm -hmm. but I think it opens up this conversation and that's why beyond happiness is about let's just have an honest dialogue within ourselves as people, as individuals, like, are we working for our resume? Are we working for our eulogy is one of the things I talk about. Because we just don't know when that last moment comes. But if we are actually actively living our legacy instead of people remembering our legacy after we're gone, 
then I think that's when we know that, you know, when we wake up at the wake up every morning, we know we're spending our time wisely as, as, as we can. Yeah, definitely. A, a few things to unpack there. I've talked about this on the podcast uh, a while ago, but the deathbed exercise, um, you don't talk about that one specifically. You have amazing exercises in this book that, that I want to get to, but one I've, I've done before is the deathbed exercise that you're laying on your deathbed and you're thinking about your life and the things that you don't think about are money. You don't think about your career. You tend to are drawn to experiences with your family and friends and loved ones. And, and I think that's a lot of, you know, what this book's about is how, how to get to the root of your why, how to get to the root of your purpose. Um, going back to, to happiness for a second here, to me, just, just the word happiness is a little bit, um, it, it almost feels sometimes like some people use it as this end state that you can get to and stay in. And what I've seen happiness um, closer to find as is like this fleeting state that you can have moments of happiness, but you go in and out of them. And I love how you explain that in this book in that there are highs and lows for each individual and each company. Um, and also the part that you said a lot of times when you go to a psychologist or you're in psychotherapy or whatever whatever it is, if you're talking to someone, people tend to focus on what's wrong versus what's right. And I thought that was really profound. Just wanted to, to see if you had anything else on that subject. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, I think that when it comes to I think for a long time, like psycholo- traditional psychology was based on trying to focus and understand what's wrong with this. And that's, you know, understood why. And then became this whole wave of positive psychology, which is focusing on not just what's wrong with us, but actually what's right with us. And having that in a sense of equilibrium, of being honest with both states, because you can't really be too optimistic, otherwise you're, you know, destined for disappointment. And then knowing that if you're too pessimistic, then it, your life will basically live that way on its own just because that's your angle and perspective on life. So for me, I thought like 2010 with Delivering Happiness and launching that, it was important to say, hey, let's use the psychology. Let's l- use this data to actually focus on what's right with us. And then I think in the last 11 years, it's kind of con- gone from that sort of statement that we really felt strongly about in building positive company cultures into where we are now, which is it can't be one or the other. Uh, It's got to be both. And being real with that is probably one of the hardest things that we can do as individuals or as leaders. And I think that that's been the biggest uh, aha of running the company for all these years and understanding where I see the breakthroughs, where people get a sense like, oh, wow, it is not just about all the things that I like can celebrate. It's about being real and in some ways maybe confrontational about the negative stuff, whether it's within ourselves or our teams or companies. And that's where true resilience comes in. And that's where true, like when I talk about, and Tony's talked about for a long time about purpose and values, like the world can do a doozy on us at any given time, whether mm-hmm. it's our own personal health 
or like the economy affecting our businesses. But if we're grounded both for, within ourselves and our companies, then at least we know how to adapt better than if we did not have a sense of that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you. And, and I know, I know a lot of this starts with looking introspectively at yourself and trying to find your purpose. But when, even, even myself to this day, I have a hard time articulating what that is. I know what I stand for. I know what I like to do, but to really define it and write it down and say, okay, here's my purpose and hand it to someone on a piece of paper. It's just as mm-hmm. difficult. I can't imagine I'm, I'm alone there. So what, what advice do you have for, for me and for people like me that are just have a hard time articulating what their purpose mm-hmm. is or what their why is? Cause it seems like it all kind of starts from there. It totally does. And I love this question because, um, I think some people that hear the word purpose these days get a little bit annoyed because they're like, oh, you know, everyone's talking about purpose. Or everyone's talking about higher meaning. And it's become a little bit of buzzword, um, I think, especially in the near recent. Because in the end of the day, like, everyone wants to change the world somehow. This is true. Right. <laughs> right. But then the how becomes like, wait, how, you know, like, what does it mean for me, whether I'm a Gen Zer or millennial or, or someone that you know, is looking to retire soon? So that's why I really wanted to make the book as practical as I could. And so I, I, I go through these different exercises. So for we already talked about the eulogy versus resume one. Uh, another one that I, I put out there is essentially don't overthink your purpose statement. So there's this exercise. It's like, essentially, there's three questions we ask. Um, number one, what, where's your energy? Uh, what either fires you up because you're pissed as hell or fires you up because you can't imagine doing, your, like spending your life without addressing? You know, that could be something that, you know, whatever you feel strongly about. And that could be so many things in the world right now. So there could be the, the energy of positive, the energy of just like, I'm pissed as hell and I want to fix it. So that's one question. What, where is that for you? And then the other question is number two is like, where's the talent? So your talents are, um, what do people ask you to do without you even saying anything? Because they're like, this, you know, Joe's amazing at this and I'm going to keep on asking him for help on this because I can see it's natural for him. Uh, And then the third question is impact. And how would you answer that? Like, how would you want to like, just, you know, again, don't overthink it, but like, how would you want to impact your family, your friends, your your company, and ultimately the world? And when you answer those three questions, that actually becomes an articulated, it could be like, it could be draft, it could be rough, it's totally fine. But that's the first step, I think, in being able to articulate what a purpose can mean. And it'll evolve too. I think that's the, the other part of like the question you're asking is like once it's once you cr- you know create it or craft it, it's not set in stone unless you want to put it in stone and like you know <laughs> make a right. frame around everything. But the whole point of it is as you evolve, as we evolve as individuals, that purpose statement will evolve too. But the beauty of it is though, at least you have a day to day reminder of that's you being as you know true and real to yourself every moment. So how do you then balance this idea where you come up with this purpose statement, you, you really 
answer those questions in a great way where you're feeling good about them. And then you're looking at your career and your career is maybe completely the opposite or separate yet. Yeah. It's you're you're not finding a bridge to those two things. And the reason I'm asking this question is I'm sure you heard the, the term recently, the great resignation <laughs> is that, mm-hmm. you know, over now, a lot of people are doing these exercises and they're, and they're like, finding themselves in an unhappy place. And I want to get to employee burnout. I love the stat in the book, eight out of 10 people are burnt out from their jobs. Mm-hmm. But there's this, there's this balance between introspectively trying to come up with your why and your purpose and actually making that something that, that you can either live off of, or you can parlay that into a different kind of career without just throwing in the towel of everything you worked for in your current career because what I've also heard recently is the great resignation can turn into the great regret in, in a year from now, <laughs> where people regret the fact that they're doing all this work and they're realizing, hey, maybe this isn't for me, which I totally respect. And and you know, we all we all we all struggle. But is there is there a fine line there? I guess is is my question. Hmm. Yeah, there definitely is a fine line, and because I. So the fine line, as as you're talking, and yes, uh, you know, we've been uh, just looking at this great resignation. I mean, four million people just in the month of April alone, just saying I quit, and a lot of those people didn't even have a next step. You know, they didn't even have a job that was there for them, and and we were in a recession, so it was kind of like astounding to me that this we can call it the great resignation. We can also call it the great awakening. And I think that's what the last 18 months Ooh, I like have. like that, yeah. It's the, that's the fine line of two sides of the same coin kind of thing, you know? Like, we have had a long set of, like, long period of time to, you know, make our conference rooms out of closets, you know? Like, we've just been holed up. And, and it just forced these questions that otherwise we would not be thinking about. So what I think is most important is like whether or not you see it as the resignation or the awakening, the questions that people are asking are the right ones. Because even if it leads them down a different path, at least they're doing it true. If they're actually answering these questions, honestly, at least they're leading a path towards a path of what's most aligned with who they are in the core of, you know, like the whole analogy of like, whether life uh, uh, shines you up or, or um, wears you down, it depends on what you're made of. And I think that's what's really happening right now. What I also think is that if you answer these questions in a reflective way, to know that you don't have to necessarily make a 180 in your life. When you answer these kind of questions, whether it's purpose or values, you can kind of see and also align yourself with the things that you are actually doing that are already aligned with your values and purpose and that you can feel good about that even if it, you know your last day was tomorrow i'm going to stick to these things like stop stay or you know go on a different path and it becomes you know a pretty you can put it on a google doc you can put it on an excel spreadsheet you just jot it on some post it notes like, what should I stop immediately? What can I, st- like, what, what should stay? Because it's totally aligned with what I'm already doing. And what should I start anew? 
Um, and I think that's why the, the, the value of doing these exercises, because I, you know, I want to keep it simple and we don't want to overthink things. Um, but then it becomes a clearer notion of just like someone being so frustrated because they had a crappy day at work, which we all do. And instead of saying, you know, forget this, I'm, I'm out of here, which is fine. But why are you out of there? And make sure you know that there are reasons why you are there. A lot of times it's because you need, you know, the income or you're supporting your family. You know, those things are super important in our lives. So being able to just double click a bit on the why and keep those things that are meaningful and important to your own meaningful happiness and letting go those things, even though they're scary, to let go. Um, but you're doing it for the right reasons. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And and I've seen over this last two years of being in an office that was vibrant and exciting and and hundreds of people running around with their computers and music and you know, just all this fun stuff that uh, that you'd imagine a tech office to have. Going from that to being, like you said, kind of in a closet, and I literally built in my utility room in my house <laughs> a little office just to kind of get away from the fray of the of the family, you know, just to go down there and work. But after a while, you know that that gets that gets tough and that gets wearing, and you don't have that, or you don't even realize what you're missing until it's gone mm-hmm. with the with other people around knowing that we're going to be in this work environment and me specifically, I look at the office I have and it's 30,000 square feet and I have three people going in the office right now. Um, and mm. we're going to subleave half, we're going to sublease half of it. So what we're where I think about this is the genie is out of the bottle. Like we're not, we're not going to, we'll never go back to what it was, uh, which, which I do think, I do think like that isn't necessarily a horrible thing. Like I think that's a good thing, but I also worry that this burnout is going to um, get worse because you're mm-hmm. what what you're finding is yeah you have a lot more freedom, you have flexibility, but yet you're kind of giving up that the interpersonal interactions that you'd have with one another for it in some cases and and. Uh, and it doesn't seem like we're going back there anytime soon, at least. Uh, yes, I'm totally aligned with you there. I think it's the, the great new abnorm. <laughs> it's not ever going to go back. And for those that want it to go back, I actually think it's not going to work out well for them. And I not, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just saying that if we're not adapting to this new abnorm that we're in, then unfortunately those hopes of going back to the good old days will just drive people to even more disappointment, you know, more burnout, more just like, uh, well, not really being fundamentally themselves in, in, in happy and more meaningful ways. So, so I'm totally with you there, uh, being able to, try and recognize as leaders, like burnout is real. And you just said it yourself, like you even created a space for yourself and then realize, wait, I, I need a little bit, you know, I need some interaction here. <laughs> like, yeah. and we've all done all these things throughout this last 18 months. But what I think what's, uh, for me, at least most optimistic, and I call it optimistic, 
and uplifting is that we're all going through, no matter what role we have, from the sea level all the way down to the frontliners, we're all having very similar questions and, and, and the need to answer them. What I think is inviting us to do as leaders is to invite those kind of dialogues at work. And the burnout is going to be real. And just being able to say, hey, I know this has been tough. It's been tough for me. Acting and living by vulnerability and honesty, you'd be amazed. And I'm sure you've seen this through your time, Joe, and, and being able to grow the company that you have. It's like, that's amazing. But unless we keep on inviting that open dialogue of, I'm... I've had a tough time. Like I'm being honest about my last 18 months and these like these are the reasons why XYZ. How about you? Where are you right now in life? And I actually invite um so there's another exercise in the book that um I talk about the wheel of wholeness. Yeah. And having that wholeness means if you imagine this, you know, pie with different pieces of the pie and like each piece represents something else like mental health physical space, relational health, uh, emotional, uh, financial, um, fun, <laughs> and, you know, pleasure, and, and spiritual, you know, just, just to name off a few. And if everyone in our companies just say, from a 1 to 10, where am I on that? And map that out for themselves, and then as leaders have an honest dialogue of what the, that is, and I'd be free and open and want to share where I'm at because... You know, I've had some pretty crappy days for a long time. And so just by opening up that sort of dialogue, I think that's where burnout is more than understood and accepted. And then it becomes more of a camaraderie, camaraderie of connection and belonging of like, okay, we're in this together. It's not necessarily the case that as leaders, we have to solve everything. There's just no way we can. Yeah. But if we come to the table, you know, we come to Zoomland <laughs> and say, hey, <laughs> hey, dude, what's going on? Uh, notice this is and this and this. Well, you know, would you like to share? It, um, it makes, I think, us not just, you know, more happy, but more human. And I think as leaders today, for the future of work especially, um, knowing mm. AI is coming in, automation and all that, uh, that's what people need. And they'll be loyal to that and more productive and efficient and you know all those metrics yeah no definitely and uh i love how i love when i read Zoomland in your book because i've been using Zoomland for so long and i haven't heard many other people say it but <laughs> yeah the 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 trick that i found too is is not just doing something once and checking off a corporate box you know you have to stay on it because mental health isn't this thing that you fix it's mm-hmm. it's something you need to work on constantly so we'll We'll have speakers come in. We do meditation. We have, I highly encourage people to get out of Zoom and walk and take walking meetings. I actually print off like my one-on-ones with people and notes and I walk around and I'll read them this way. Like, cause it's, and, and actually you're more present cause then you don't have the fireworks and notifications going off. So there's a lot of benefits to that, but still like it's, you know, after doing all of that, you have to stay consistent as, as an organization and and give outlets to people and constantly, you know, it's a lot of work. It's not just this, you know, this once or twice a year. Like it's, I'm talking like every other week, like you need to get on it at least and have mm-hmm. these discussions and know that there's outlets and for, for, for people outside of what HR provides, like your manager, your supervisors need to be aware of this stuff too. And they need to stay on it because 
just because you have the, the mental health uh, need or need to, to talk to someone doesn't mean the workload decreases. And I find that's the issue with people. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's great. You're providing these resources, but I actually can't even use them because I'm so busy. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just trying to get people to say, like, well, play offense, take the time for yourself. The work will be there. And you'll probably find that you're going to be more productive and you'll be, hap- you'll be you know, overall happier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I, I do totally agree. It's not just an HR function. It's like it's a leader function. It's C-level. And I think we can all be leaders of our life at work, no matter our role or title. And doing on a recurring basis, I was to say in the very least uh, a quarterly basis, and you said weekly. What I would also say is that creating the systems that it's not the onus of the manager or boss to ask, but creating the system so that it's an open and free dialogue. You know, like if if someone, an employee is feeling something, create that system where they, they can just speak up. You know, so whether it's that Google Doc or whether it's just like, hey, I, I need to share something with you. That um, is what I think is like what could be most effective when we just don't know what's around the corner and we can't read people's minds. And one of the yeah. things that really impacted me with um, Tony's passing is like it reminded me of this quote and I'm going to paraphrase it because I, I tweaked it a little bit, but. Uh, the quote is be kind, but I, I say be human because everyone is facing their own battle internally and we have no idea what it is. So how do we open that up and, and therefore, you know, ultimately for us as leaders, be better people, but also build better companies for the long term. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, diving back in the book, you, you have a chapter on ripple, ripple me to we. And you talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And one thing I didn't know until I read the book is 20 years after he published those, he realized that self-actualization wasn't the, the top of that pyramid. And I'm just, just curious, um, you mentioned transcendence was. What that actually means, I'd, I'd love for you to unpack that, that a bit to explain to the audience how that would impact them or or what that, you know, why you'd write that in the book? Why was that meaningful to you? Yeah, so, uh, so Maslow's hierarchy uh, was mentioned in Delivering Happiness. And I actually didn't even understand, or I didn't even realize it too until I started researching this next book. Because I always thought self-actualization was at the top for him. And it's worked, and, and a lot of people reference it. Like, we hear it in boardrooms, we hear it in, like, you know, meetings and all that. But then I was just like, there was something that I was trying to represent in the me, we, and the connection of the individual and being true to that authentic self and how that ripples out in its impact to the we. So there was something that was off. I, th- I feel like it wasn't, uh, the hierarchy for Maslow wasn't current anymore because it's been so long. So that's why I was trying to dig into it. And then I was like, oh, crap. I mean, awesome. He actually realized there was more to it before he passed away. And he added transcendence as the top you know, of the pyramid. And no one talks about it, which was kind of blew my mind because mm-hmm. he saw it before he passed. Yet everyone thinks self-actualization is it. And in, in, in some ways, it, it is a big part of it. Self-actualization of your own purpose, your meaning, like feeling like real and full and fulfilled. 
But transcendence was when he said, that's not it. There's actually something more, which is helping others self-actualize. And for me, my metaphor in the book, which parallels it, is like, we want to grow other greenhouses. That's a huge part of what we want to do as leaders. But we also want to tend to our own and make sure our greenhouse is growing too. So those two things hand in hand, that's the meet and we concept, is what I was like, yay, cool, Maslow, you, <laughs> you nailed it before you passed. And I get to like share this message in, in what I believe is a more current way of making sure it's not a hierarchy. These things we all want to be, you know, we want to have a physiological needs, but we also want to make sure we're not just self-actualized, but we're helping others in that too. The transcendence is so key because what I found in kind of the secret to life is you're happier when you give to others, not when you receive. And Mm -hmm. I think you can, you can do that once you've kind of got your own house in order as much as possible. I mean, you're never going to get it totally in order. It's always, everything's a work in progress. Every day is a challenge, but Mm -hmm. once you can get to a place where you can help others like that really is, uh, gives you more meaning and makes you, makes you feel good and gives you the more happiness than anything you could ever receive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's totally on point. And I think that's, I mean, I think we can talk about it in ways that it seems right or feels right. But my hope with this book and, and you know, what I'm trying to share with what Maslow understood before he passed is that these things can and should be hand in hand. And you also you know, just, just mentioned it too. It's like, it's, it's going to be an imperfect road, imperfect process. But the fact that we are not our own island, um, unless we choose to be, and that's a different course. Um, but the, the way we get to this whole concept of transcendence in, in, that, in that sense of higher purpose is that by doing both, you know, for ourselves and for others, that's where this like kind of crazy, unexpected, unpredictable world gets more sound and more grounded and therefore more meaningful and, and more sustainably happy. And now you mentioned greenhouse a couple of times, but can you define what that is? Because I want you to get in the greenhouse conditions because I thought those were pretty profound alignment, belonging, accountability, commitment. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, can you expand on what a greenhouse is? Yeah, so essentially uh, it was a metaphor that Tony used to use quite a bit and I wanted to build on that for this because he he always talked about as a leader we don't have to be the biggest tree tallest plant in the greenhouse we're here to grow others so my build on that for this book especially after he passed was yes this is true and we have to make sure we're nurturing our own greenhouse as our individual person and therefore like the wheel of wholeness was really important to introduce and then these elements that you're talking about what I wanted to do was expand it from the me as an individual to the we of teams and organizations. So even if we're not the CEO, um, we can actually have these elements and conditions that we can control. So when I looked at it and I reflected on the last 11 years, I saw that there was a lot of things that was working with scientific happiness. But because of everything that's happened, especially in the last few years and 18 months, 
there were things that were missing. So that's why I added, and you mentioned it uh, in passing already, that there's more conditions to these greenhouses. If we want to truly sustain them and grow from a profit perspective, purpose perspective, and also people and people as assets. So there's alignment. Essentially, questions there are, if you can answer the question, what's in it for me and what's in it for all, then there's alignment. Uh, belonging. And that's, you know, a big word these days with DEI, DIB, et cetera. And it's a build of, it's not just connectedness anymore. It's making sure people can show up and dance however they want. Uh, and then... DEI, for those that don't know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the third thing is accountability. And I know that sounds like, you know, that word is being used so many ways of government, you know, who's accountable for what. But what my message there with accountability is that we're basically all in our villages again. I, I bring up the story of my grandpa. Like, he came over here, immigrant. He made, he, he somehow got from a place of nothing to being one of the biggest real estate moguls in, in the Bay Area in Sacramento. And then he lost it all because JFK got assassinated and, you know, everything was, uh, everything tumbled. But he always had accountability. Like he wanted, he always wanted to support people that came before him. And he always gave back to where people he wanted to support the next generation of. So I'm wanting to reframe that term accountability of like, there are people that literally lived and died for us to be where we're at. So having that shared sense of accountability for the past and, and having our shoulders so that other people can stand on top of it is how I want to reframe villages in our companies as teams and organizations. And the last one is commitment. So with commitment, it's a sense of not just like short-term gain anymore. Uh, short-term game or short-term gain. <laughs> it's the long-term game. Like we had to go through so much triage with the last 18 months as, as people and leaders and employees. And that's, it's more of a reactive place. But the commitment towards the long-term goals of what we see for our organizations, you know, for our teams, for ourselves as human beings, I think that's the ad that I would like to make because these things, especially if they're most meaningful, don't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. um, but I worked with Starbucks. They had a triage. You know, they're a huge retailer around the world. They're hemorrhaging money. They had a triage, but they also saw like, you know what? Are we going to live by our mission? Are we going to live by our purpose? And what they did was they did the triage. They got themselves back on their feet. But in parallel, they also said, we're going to be even more purpose-led than ever. And so instead of just profit-driven, which they actually admitted that they were for you know, that was part of I me. Mean, they're a for-profit company. But they actually said, we're going to be people positive and planet positive. And they put really big stands out there and made huge investment into what that means for the longevity of not just the company, but the people that work there and the planet we live on. So just as an example of what commitment means, like you're seeing things um, that might be beyond when we're here, beyond our own happiness, but it all adds up. Yeah, I was going to talk about the 
example you have in the book about employee happiness and how that equates to stock price. And Starbucks comes to mind because obviously they're a publicly traded company and there's a balance. I'm part of a publicly traded company. I sold my businesses to a publicly traded company. And I know I'm on the executive team that we have to hit consensus. We have to hit our earnings. Um, and if we, if we don't, or if we're trending in, not in that direction for whatever reason, we have to take action. And every public company is the same. So it, it's pretty interesting to see the correlation between employee happiness and the stock price. Is that what you also found with Starbucks? Uh, so with Starbucks, we didn't necessarily measure, they had different me- metrics, you know, that they are captured. They didn't call it happiness. So I just want to be very transparent about that. What we did see though, is that with companies that do measure happiness and well-being, and, and it, it, it needs to be specific too, you know, like how you measure what it means for an employee to be productive or effective, et cetera. Would you consider that like, like the uh, engagement score? Sorry to interrupt. Like, like engagement. Yes, it is like engagement. What I think is important is that we, we as leaders need to actually define what these terms mean, you know, because it'd be so easy. Like, oh yeah, we have hiring engagement. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's like, what does that actually mean? So so in, in the book, what I wanted to express is that there's the ROI of the return on investment. And so with companies and um, more funds now, so there's a fund, there's a Parnassus fund that actually invested in companies that were focused on happiness and well-being, and that they outperformed S&P 500. Uh, Fortune's 100 best companies to work for, as we know, they're rating the companies that actually you know, double down on their people so to speak, those companies outperform the S&P 500. So I think these data points are just, uh, I just want to give them a big spotlight because the data is there. It's definitely an effort to shift gears if you've been in a company that's been completely profit driven and wants to continue to be. But that's why I think this these questions that you're asking and the conversation we're asking or we're having is so important because what kind of person or what kind of leader do you want to be? We can keep on going down that path and people will have to be at the detriment of it, suffer from something of like not, not getting their well-being or paid right, et cetera. Or it can be on the other side of it when people ask, hey, what was Joe known for? What was Jen known for? What was Steve Jobs known for? No one asks, no one says, oh, he made an amazing iPhone. Like, like no, he's like, like he, he had, like his sister just talked about how an amazing person he was. So I think that now is really um, putting us to this important question of how do we actually want to live our legacies? Not when we're gone, but when we're still here, do we want to be respected, honored, loved for who we are? I can't imagine anyone that's saying uh, no because I want to make more money. Yeah, no, that's that is so right on, and I wholeheartedly believe that. And I think what's happening now with the Great Resignation, quote unquote, is people are getting fed up, and you see companies that. We're focused solely on profits, not on the employees, solely on revenue, not on the employees. And what's happening is there's going to be this lagging effect where those companies are, their KPIs and their their results are going to be lower than expected because they're not going to have those key people 
And most mm. of these companies are made up of amazing human beings that make the company what, what it is. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I think that's right on. But Jen, I know uh, uh, I could talk to you forever about this and it's, it's been an honor. I highly recommend Beyond Happiness. We could go into so much more of this book. But what, I, what I love about it is the exercises in here. There's tangible things. Like sometimes you read these books and you can't take things away. There's a ton in here that we couldn't even get to today. This is coming out in October. I know it's going to crush it. Uh, and I'm so so proud of you that that you uh, you wrote it and uh, and that you wrote it in Tahoe and I, again it's serendipitous we're having this conversation where we are because yeah. I just got out here yesterday and I'm talking to you today. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. Love that. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you for your support. Thanks for reading it and uh, and yeah I'm, I'm uh, I wish you could you could teleport me to Tahoe right now because I would love to <laughs> to be there for a minute but. But yeah, uh, however I can help for you and your audience, that's what uh, we're here for. So just let us know. Oh, yeah. Before I forget, what's the website for the book? Is there a website for it? Yeah. So uh, the book itself is on, we just launched this. Uh, it's just jenlim.com. So J-E-N-N-L-I-M.com. And you'll find the book there. But we also have Delivering Happiness, which is the, the company still. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good luck again. I know it's going to be a huge success and I hope to talk with you soon. Thank you so much, Joe. Huge thank you to Jen for taking the time to spend with me and the Nanos, their family. Undoubtedly, my biggest takeaway here is thinking about Maslow's top hierarchy of needs, transcendence, and helping others find their purpose. I found my great awakening during the pandemic and started this podcast something I'd been interested in and thought about. So the big, if not now, when question always comes in my mind. It always comes into play. Whatever popped into your mind while listening to this, while listening to Jen talking about finding your passion, hold on to that. It can be a fitness, work, or personal goal. It doesn't matter. Don't ignore those feelings and do something about it. Remember, mood follows action. I want you to ask yourself, if not now, when? And remember, you, me, we are not almost there.